Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. In today's episode, we will look at the prophetic background of the amazing events in Acts chapter 2 and discover the biblical truth about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. We're going to read two passages of Scripture today, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we're going to read from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look! Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out of my Spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. James Bales called Acts chapter 2 the hub or the centerpiece of the Bible. And when we examine how the history, prophecy, and preaching of the Old Testament and the Gospels 
flow into the events of this chapter, and the subsequent theology and future of the church and the Christian faith grow out of it, I believe that Brother Bales was right in his assessment. Acts chapter 1 opens with a summary of the gospel record of how in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God who was in heaven came down to the earth, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended back to heaven to sit on his throne and rule the kingdom he had just created. With these facts, we see that the gospel has a V-shape, and without that complete V, it is lacking and inadequate. Some religious systems focus only on the fact that God is in heaven, but this has no real comfort to the sinner on earth. If this is all we have, it's really dreadful. God is far away, and we're down here. Maybe he has an interest in us, and maybe not. There's a universal sense that he is holy, and we are wicked, and if we should ever meet him, the meeting would not be pleasant. So there needs to be more than merely the fact of God in heaven to call the message good news. Some systems go a little farther, but terminate in the fact that God came down to earth, and these find their greatest meaning in the teachings and works of Jesus during his ministry, but that too is severely lacking in resolving the troubles and curses under which sinning mankind struggle. Maybe Jesus was a great healer and teacher 2,000 years ago, but where is he today? So others go a little further and find the ultimate end of the gospel in Jesus' death on the cross. But if that is the end, the Apostle Paul says, Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and we are of all men most pitiable. 1 Corinthians 15, 17-19 So the resurrection is also essential to the gospel. But not only the resurrection. In the four gospels and the first chapter of Acts, we learn that after he was raised, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Acts 1 and verse 9. Mark says in Mark 16, 19, he was received up into heaven to sit down at the right hand of God. So the full gospel paints a beautiful picture of God condescending to earth, suffering to save, triumphing over sin and death, and returning victoriously to heaven to rule. And that ultimate picture is not truly seen on earth until the events recorded in Acts chapter 2. In a previous study, we looked at the prophecies and poetry of the Old Testament that describe what happened on the other side of the clouds after Jesus vanished from human sight and was ushered by angels into the presence of God the Father to receive power and authority and glory, to be crowned and enthroned in heaven. But none of that was known on earth. The old scriptures said that it happened, but there was no proof. The prophets, even to the last Old Testament prophet John the Immerser, told that when the time came, God would give a sign on the earth. In Mark 9 and verse 1, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. In Matthew 24, 19-31, Mark 13, 
24-27 and Luke 21, 25-27, Jesus described in the language of the old prophets how his kingdom would be set up on earth and the old kingdom of ethnic Israel would pass away as the people of God. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Jesus made this statement in the context of his prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. And though most modern English versions do not present these words as quotations from the Old Testament, they are. In Isaiah 13 and verse 10, the prophet pronounces God's judgment against Babylon. And in describing how that empire would fall and lose its power, he said, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6-7, through seven, the prophet foretold the building of God's new and more glorious temple, and he says, In those days I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, the prophet saw the victorious return of the Messiah to heaven after his work on earth, and described it like this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. As we can see, these are the words which Jesus spoke in his discourse on the Mount of Olives, and understanding their prophetic context, we can see that they do not describe the second coming or the destruction of the universe although they are frequently misapplied to those events, but rather they are apocalyptic pictures of the removal and destruction of the nation Israel, especially the fall of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, which signaled that God had moved away from the ethnic Jews as his chosen people and had established the spiritual Israel, the Church of Christ, as his new people on earth. This is what is meant by the shaking of the powers of heaven and of earth and the tumult in the sea. Very frequently these are symbols of earthly governments, and in this place they symbolize the government of Israel, and they are being shaken because the power is being removed from them. 
also described as the ascension of Jesus into heaven to receive his kingdom. This is what is meant by the statement, They, the powers, or the leaders of Israel, will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is, they will see a sign that Daniel's prophecy has been fulfilled, and Jesus has been given power and a kingdom on earth. And then the gospel would be preached, and the kingdom would spread by its preaching to all peoples, nations, and languages, as Daniel says. And this is what is meant by the words, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. And if we wonder about these interpretations, Jesus settles it when he says in Matthew 24 and verse 34, immediately after quoting these prophecies, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus, in his preaching, echoed the prophets that the old kingdom of Israel was going to end, and the kingdom of Messiah would be established. And when it was established, there would be a sign and power visible to men on the earth, especially to the Jews of that day. Now, with that prophetic background, let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. We talked about these words in a previous study. The promise of the Father referred to the Holy Spirit coming as a special helper for the apostles to give them authority to speak for Jesus Christ on earth and to organize his people in truth and righteousness. But you may remember that we passed over the next words, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In our former study, we noticed that Jesus makes the promise of the Father something distinct from the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But he says that the two would happen at the same time, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The promise of the Father would empower the twelve to serve as apostles, but the baptism in the Holy Spirit would accomplish another purpose. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we want to consider these words very carefully now as they set the stage for what happens in Acts chapter 2. This is a quotation of sorts from John himself. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the Bible says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John, through his preaching and baptism, was signaling that all the prophets had foretold about the coming and work of the Messiah was about to be fulfilled. So verse 7 continues, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said this because as a prophet, 
He could see that they were coming out of selfish motives rather than sincerely desiring to hear John's message, so he continues, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. These words are very significant. They declare that it is not enough to be an ethnic Jew, a physical descendant of Abraham. When the Messiah comes, he will be seeking those who are spiritually sons of Abraham through faith. He continues, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you in water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff in unquenchable fire. Now, there are four questions we need to answer about what John says regarding baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire. Who would baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire? Who would be baptized? How many baptisms would be administered? What is the contrast that John is making between his baptism with water and the baptism with the Spirit and fire? First, John says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. The one coming after John was the Messiah, Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 1 and verse 15. And John affirms that Jesus is superior to him in both his person and his ministry. Second, John is speaking to a mixed audience of believing and unbelieving Jews. All those who were baptized by John were Jews. In fact, his baptism was for Jews only, according to Matthew chapter 10, verses 5-6. through But on this occasion, there were some present who believed John's message and were looking for the Messiah. You can see that in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And there were others present, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those they influenced, who rejected John and would reject the Messiah also, Matthew 3 and verse 7. So when John says he will baptize you, we must understand that you is inclusive of two classes of people. Based on that fact, we should not be surprised to see that John announces two baptisms that the Messiah would administer to the respective groups. Consider the following evidence that the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the baptism in fire are not the same and are not given to the same groups. In fact, one is a blessing to the believing and the other is a curse to the unbelieving. First, in Mark's and John's accounts, where the unbelieving crowd is not present, fire is not mentioned at all, only the Holy Spirit. See Mark 1 and verse 8, and John chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. Second, in the context, baptism in fire is clearly a symbol of destruction and punishment against those who do not bear fruits of repentance. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10 says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
Some modern religious theorists claim that baptism in fire is a kind of purification, like the refining of metals. But the illustration used by John is not metal. It's a tree. And when you throw a tree in the fire, it isn't refined. It's destroyed. In verse 12, the Messiah is depicted as coming to clean out Israel and to separate the good from the bad. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff in unquenchable fire. This picture fits perfectly with the preaching of Jesus that those of Israel who believed in him and received him would be welcomed into his kingdom. John would say, gathered into his barn, the church, and those who rejected him would be destroyed in the fiery furnace of God's judgment when Jerusalem and Israel were destroyed. I believe that the destruction of Jerusalem was primarily what is meant by the baptism in fire. And of course, they would ultimately be destroyed in the final judgment of God in hell, which all earthly judgments illustrate. And I think this conclusion is supported when Jesus speaks to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, because he does not mention baptism in fire as something for them, but only baptism in the Holy Spirit. To the third question, the contrast is that while John's baptism in water was to prepare Israel for the coming kingdom, the baptism in the Holy Spirit in fire would signify that the kingdom had come. The baptism in the Spirit marked the inauguration of Christ's rule and his reign from heaven, and the baptism in fire marked the end of the kingdom of ethnic Israel as God's people on earth. Understanding this meaning of John's sermon and the fact that this is a recurring theme throughout Old Testament prophecy will be of major importance when we come to another Old Testament prophecy that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 to explain what's happening there. Before we move on, there's a lingering issue that we need to resolve. If we read John's sermon only, then we might conclude that every Jew who believed in the Messiah would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. In fact, some people conclude that every Christian is baptized in the Spirit based on John's words. But John's sermon is not the final word on the matter. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus makes it clear that while the baptism in the Holy Spirit would be an event that would impact all of Israel and, in fact, the whole world, only a small number of people, seemingly the apostles only initially, would personally experience the phenomenon. So Jesus leaves the earth, having informed the disciples that the sign of the kingdom of heaven is now not many days away. And in Acts chapter 2, around a week and a half later, after this announcement, Something extraordinary was seen and heard in Jerusalem that changed the world forever and signaled the fullness of the good news of Christ to be shared with every creature under heaven. And we'll talk about that in our next study. In John's sermon to the Jews, he announced that Messiah was coming to bless and to curse, to baptize with the Holy Spirit, or to baptize in fire. He had in mind two very specific historical events, but the principle at the heart of his message has a universal application. The apostles tell us that when Jesus comes again, it will be a very different experience for those who believe and those who do not believe, or to put it another way, 
for those who are Christians and those who are not. Romans 11.22 says, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10, through 10, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay the tribulation of those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Goodness or severity? Tribulation or rest? Vengeance or glory, favor or fire. When Jesus comes again, he will come with both. And which will be your portion? That has only to do with whether or not you have accepted his salvation and surrendered to his sovereignty in this life. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our Goodwill. While we do his good will, he abides with us still, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. Trust and obey.